0: what in your opinion is the biggest waste of time
1: hmm that is a great question i think maybe a biggest waste of time or this is what comes to mind first (laughs) is having uh, meetings without agenda or um Having meetings for the sake of meetings, I'd, I'd say that's a huge time warp, and it hasn't really gone away. With with Zoom, uh, it might have even gotten worse.
2: <laughs> Welcome to season two of Altoia Stories. My name is Alexey, and I'm here with my co-host Hilla.
0: You will hear more stories from setbacks to victories and everything in between. This season, our guests include both Yes alumni as well as other inspiring people, who share an entrepreneurial mindset.
2: Alright. Welcome, Henrietta, to our podcast, RJ Stories, Uh, this time to our remote studio. We could begin with the introduction, so could you tell us who is Henrietta Moon?
1: Yeah, great to be here. Super, super excited. So I'm Henrietta Moon. I used to be called Kekalainen. I'm an alumni of Alto ES, but today I'm the founder and co-founder and CEO of Carboculture. And Carboculture does carbon drawdown. Um, we have a patented technology that we pull down carbon from the atmosphere with and store it for millennia. And uh, in addition to that, I've been doing all sorts of ecosystem stuff, and consider Alto Yes very much home. Uh, so, so it's really nice to be here today. And yeah, I'm Finnish. I've lived all over all over the world, and and I'm sure we'll talk more about what I've been doing soon.
0: Yes, let's talk about those. But we could start with Alto Yes. So, how did you hear about Alto ES in the first place?
1: Yeah, I had a friend of mine who was working at Rovio when Angry Birds was just a new thing and she was on the board of Alto ES. And Alto ES was doing a, a thing with STVP, Stanford Technology Ventures program where Alto was bringing professor of entrepreneurship to Finland and Alto ES was kind of like tasked with with running the week or maybe we took that task to ourselves and they were looking for coordinators of this whole whole shebang so so we had loads of events with everyone from students to ministers to startup sauna to to everybody and so i had worked before in in events and and uh, coordinated all sorts of stuff and i was a trainee at the foreign ministry and we brought really high profile guests into finland so I met Christo and Linda at a Wednesday barbecue outside of whatever it's called today, but it was called garage before, (laughs) in between design factory um, in the big courtyard, there was always a Wednesday barbecue. And I met all these people who were talking about stuff that i had no idea what they were talking about they used all these crazy acronyms and when i got home that night i was just frantically googling what is tech crunch and what does an exit mean and and all sorts of terminology that i had never heard of but but i definitely got bitten by the bug and that's uh when i kind of joined Alto yes
2: so was uh, the kind of um my- mystified picture around startups. The thing that attracted you to join Alto Es, or what was the actual thing thing that got you to join?
1: Oh no, 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 def- yeah, definitely not. I didn't even think that I wanted to start my own startup when I joined Alto Es. It wasn't like a thing in my head. It was just a bunch of like really really excited people doing cool stuff. And I had always been a volunteer in a lot of, like, organizations and always, you know, up to no good, uh, always cooking something new. And so when I joined this crew who were just a bunch of people from all sorts of different universities and places who were just like, who just decided that they're going to do a, you know, a, a thousand person student event or bring in a Silicon Valley hotshot for, students to listen to or or for startups or you know all these things there was there was like no questions asked people were just doing stuff and that's what that energy got me into Aldo ES we didn't even kind of like maybe loosely defined Aldo ES at at that time but it was like inspiring young young people to become entrepreneurs but then in the kind of wake of it I also got inspired and became an entrepreneur so
0: so so yeah it was that momentum that definitely got me and what were your responsibilities during your time uh in alto yes that's a great question so so i came
1: kind of like uh in the middle of a season so to say and uh, i was brought into alto yes when krista and linda kristo and linda <laughs> we're, we're organizing the Steve blank week. So basically bringing in this Stanford professor who was a kind of like guru on entrepreneurship and, and lean customer development. And so they were looking for, for hands to kind of help coordinate the entire week. So I came in for that. It was me and, and JP and Krista and Linda, who basically ran that part of it, of course, with a lot of help from, other people in Alto Es, um, the board, the actives, uh, startup sauna people, and all sorts of crew. So, so it was really a big production. We had probably something like 10 to 15 events that week. Um, some with ministers and super high, kind of like government officials. Some with you know thousands of students outside of uh, outside on the parking lot, or or something else. So, so it was really quite a hectic quite a hectic thing to pull off and, and we really had a minute schedule for Professor Blank that week. Uh, so it was all very exciting and yeah, I was planning and and executing that.
2: So super cool event uh, and occasion, but uh, do you feel like having been part of Altea and uh, active member uh, 10 years ago, uh, has it uh, changed your life path or Affect your, your life in some other way
1: oh most definitely um i mean i cringe a little bit when you say it's been 10 years but <laughs> i guess it has um and yeah some of those people are still my closest friends who who we were doing stuff with at those times some of us work together a lot of us are actually really supporting each other because some of us have gone on to to build startups or or other sorts of stuff and we have uh, a good support network with each other and and that's been really really insanely powerful and of course having peers who are you know you kind of get that momentum and the lift and the help and the kind of Support from the people around you. So, so if you surround yourself with people who like to do investment banking, you'll probably become an investment banker or something. And and in this case, uh, we were a bunch of crazy kids, and and a lot of us started startups and and uh, movements and you know uh, all sorts of stuff. So so that's definitely changed my life, and it was a great segue to find what my way of making impact is. And I'd say that AltOS was like the first step that really pushed me towards that. And then perhaps later in life, Singularity University was like, Oh, okay. People actually want to not only build startups, but actually build huge companies that have a huge positive impact to this world. So, so those were kind of like, I kind of always wanted to do those things, but because I ended up in these kinds of places, Nobody stopped me or put me down for trying to do those things. So that's that's what I would call it, like a positive lift.
0: Uh, so how did you end up at Singularity University?
1: Um, yeah, so kind of like through a couple of different things. So so my friends Linda and Carrie launched Rails Girls in Helsinki, and then I asked them that, hey, why don't we do one in Berlin? And then we did one in Berlin, and then it ended up also. We also did one in you know all sorts of places. Amsterdam, and all over the place. But then when we went to eventually to Krakow to a developer conference, uh, Linda decided to open source the whole thing, and then it spread to 300 different cities around the world, and it's been on every continent. And I was kind of helping fuel that growth in the beginning, aka an email bot. <laughs> so that was fantastic, and we got actually crazy award for it this ruby hero award which is the highest merit that we could have gotten in that that developer community and it was thanks to the kind of diversity that we were bringing in and um yeah i mean the community was just so fantastic and so helpful and everybody was chipping in and so that was one thing and then i launched pioneers festival in vienna which was like a future technologies conference and there was this professor speaking there uh, his name was Daniel Kraft and he was a professor of global health. He's also a prof at Stanford. He has like invested or started into like tens of startups or or he's an advisor or something. And he was there speaking about the future of health. And I was kind of his PA or liaison, helping him get everything done for the, for the show. And he knew me from before. So he knew some stuff that I had already done, the Rails Girls stuff and everything. I mean we were building that conference and launching it so so then he just liked my attitude and how i was doing stuff and you know when i told him like okay i need your final presentation right now and he's like i'm not ready yet i said give me your final presentation for now and then you know we can get your final final presentation um afterwards if we have time or something so he just thought that okay singularity university needs everybody it needs technologists scientists designers really deep knowledge in into future technologies but it also needs the people who are gonna sort of go and drag those people out of the building and and out into the real world and that was kind of like me or what he saw in me i don't have a specific skill set i'm not a n- nuclear scientist you know there's there's not that in me but there's a lot lot more that was needed and so i applied into su it was a really long process i had to run like basically run together my own scholarship in 3 days which was 35000 euros so that was kind of like the final uh, test of fire <laughs> before they accepted me. But but whatever, I I got enough promises in two days that I just bluffed. And I said that I have the money together and I knew that I wouldn't have to pay it before the next week. So I had a little bit of more time and I got it all together. And finally, I got into SU and rest is history.
2: <laughs> so what did you learn in uh, Singularity University?
1: Well, mainly it was about the other participants. So we were 80 people from all around the world from very different, very, very different backgrounds, different nationalities, very different age groups. There was um, everybody from, I think I was one of the youngest at 23 and some of our oldest students were like 58. So people really had different different skill sets. So the people were just really, really impressive. So So one of them had built a volunteer organization in south america that had half a million volunteers working every year the other one had designed a security system for sheeple or something and somebody else was researching micro rna and really a world-class scientist in, in what happens in the genomic space and all sorts of people so from really 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 different kinds of walks of life and the point was to bring these people together to start thinking about how do we start solving some of the world's most pressing problems and leveraging technology to to make the impact bigger or better. And so that's when I met my co-founder, Chris Garstens, and that's the first time that we kind of started thinking about carboculture. It had a different name. We had some teammates who dropped out, but in any case, that was kind of like the the birth of it all, but it was mainly um, getting inspired by our our peers and Really, the impactful thing was seeing all these really, really smart people. Some of them had invested with Richard Branson. They didn't need money. They didn't need fame. They didn't need anything, but they just wanted to build something meaningful for the world that would do something else than just just make cash.
0: You briefly mentioned what carboculture culture is in the beginning, but can you talk a little bit more about what carboculture carbo-culture and what's the technology or the product behind it?
1: yeah great great question so basically what carboculture does is we're on a mission to to bring down a billion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and now instead of inventing a machine that would try to capture parts per million we actually outsource the capturing to to the biosphere. So all trees and crops in the world that use solar power every day to draw down carbon dioxide and make uh, make carbo carbons and and sugars out of it. So so basically, we take waste biomass such as food production waste like nutshells or peach pits or <laughs> or something else or like oat husks and we take them to ultra high temperature in our patented process for a split second which turns it into a carbon. And now the carbon stays stable for 1,000 years. So essentially, if you had let those, that biomass lie around somewhere, or obviously if you burn it, it re-returns to the atmosphere immediately. But if you leave it somewhere to rot, it'll decay and return to the atmosphere in something like, let's say five years, maybe 10 max. So so in this way, we kind of capture and lock the carbon away for 1,000 years. And so we have three products. Uh, One is the, we don't need uh, input heat. We actually generate a lot of heat in the process. So we sell our excess heat. Then we we generate this biocarbon that can be sold for soil enhancement and for water filtration. And then the third thing is the carbon removal credits. So, So there's actually a voluntary marketplace for purchasing carbon removal credits and they are different to your traditional offsetting. So so most of the market today is still traditional offsets, which would mean, for example, protecting a forest or green energy or something like this. But typically they're not about carbon removal, they're just avoiding more emissions. And that's the difference, we need to do both for sure, but basically the world needs to cut down its emissions and that still might not be enough. So by 2050, approximately give or take some tens of years, we will need to be removing tens of billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere so that our global warming doesn't go over two degree Celsius. And why is that a big deal? Or like, first of all, of course, physics, like carbon warms faster than air, so we need to get it down. Um, But second of all, the two degrees Celsius is quite significant because our last ice age was only minus six degrees Celsius to average global temperatures. So you can imagine what average global temperature two degrees Celsius plus would do, because in some places it might mean plus eight degree and that means crop failure droughts etc etc and in some places it might mean actually minus eight degrees or the shifting of sea currents or something else so it's it's really really dramatic and and that's what we're trying to trying to stop
2: could you elaborate a bit more on the how did you get the idea started or where did the idea come from because like these problems are such big global problems and uh, I think many young listeners might be thinking that how to approach these such vast problems. So how was your start?
1: Yeah, um, we were lucky in a sense that my co-founder had been talking to this one professor and he had been kind of like a mentor of my co-founder for over a decade. And so instead of trying to start from scratch, we actually evaluated some technologies that are out there and kind of methods of carbon drawdown. And then we decided to go with this one. And our technology had been invented in the University of Hawaii, the Natural Energy Institute. And basically the basic research had been groundbreaking, but it had already been happening for a decade. So by the time we got there, we could actually... Um, license the technology from the university and start scaling it out and building it bigger and, and starting to take it into its commercial phases. So when technologies are invented, they can you know remain in a lab setting for decades. The same has happened to VR. The first VR headset was probably from the 70s or, or 3D printing. So really, how do we take those groundbreaking technologies that are happening in in university setting i mean finland has loads of this and nobody's nobody's going to drag those things out of the lab (laughs) and and oftentimes academics have really different qualities than entrepreneurs and both of those are phenomenal qualities none of them are bad it's just that there are different kinds of people and and sometimes academics uh, go and start something like you know solar foods posse or somebody but in this case the the invention wasn't going to move anywhere so what we did is we licensed the technology and then we started working on it and my co-founder with some help scaled out the technology eight times in volume we built a pilot plant we ran it much more than the university ever had and let's say the technology started from something that was about the size of a french press coffee maker and then moved to the size of a microwave (laughs) this is all in the lab phase but today what we're operating is about the size of two 40 foot shipping containers so we're already almost in commercial scale we're just about on the brink of that but basically we've proved out that the technology can be uh can be scaled out and it can be used for commercial purposes we've done testing with customers and with labs and universities etc so so yeah
0: yeah, that sounds really interesting. And I think there should be more collaboration with like researchers and then entrepreneurs to make such impact.
1: Totally. I mean, if I was in Altarias today, uh, I would actually think of doing some sort of a event together or some sort of mixers or anything to build some bridges towards the, the academic world a little bit more, because there's a lot of cool research happening um, and and there's perhaps not enough of that spark uh, (laughs) or or then yeah I don't know I think there's a lot of things that could be commercialized and people think oh nobody wants this thing that I'm making but it's like something phenomenal or like really good design or or groundbreaking in you know biosciences or something so so definitely there should be more attention on that
0: yeah yeah definitely and uh, what kind of response did Carboculture get or like your three products or one of them? So what was the response?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So, so when we got finally started, like, let's say early 2017 is when we properly kicked off. First of all, the carbon market, the voluntary carbon market was not there. The price was something like a few euros per ton of CO2. So basically, absolutely like you know hundreds of folds too small <laughs> and um like biocarbon was interesting biochar had been a like thing for thousands of years already and people were kind of like oh we've seen it it doesn't work and so nobody was really interested in climate change either so i'd say we were off to quite a rocky start um it was definitely not easy There was no price on carbon removal or carbon credits or carbon credits were existing, but the price was too small for us to do anything with it. And so the first years were really hard. And and especially with the investor community, nobody really understood what we're doing, why we're doing it, who would be the customers. and, And perhaps we hadn't sorted it out ourselves either, but that did give us time to kind of Work on the technology and work on work on our ourselves as well, and uh, kind of kind of get ahead. And now we're happy that everything's changing really, really rapidly, and people are companies and people are understanding that, okay, something needs to be done. And if we need this carbon removal capacity to be at tens of billions of tons soon and it's at you know not even a million tons today, these companies need to need to get to scale. so so, Finally we're having good tailwinds but but it was quite a quite a start I have to say.
2: Did you uh, uh, innovate or come up with some new business models or uh, was it like uh, just uh, the change of market in general?
1: Yeah, I mean, great question and I think we're like although I wouldn't call us uh I would definitely not call us succeeded yet or anything like that, but this is like a case of classic overnight success so you grind at something for seven years nobody really understands what you're doing or cares and a lot of people just think that you know whatever you're like a loser because you're not on the current trends and then boom something happens in the market and things change and suddenly you are making something that people need they just didn't get it (laughs) earlier you didn't you didn't know how to tell them it what you're making is exactly what they need and then then things start working out so so oftentimes like there are turning points in in startups but it's really hard to see that beforehand. Um, it's easy to point them out afterwards. And and yeah, that's kind of like the tricky, tricky thing about things. But definitely now we're making something that people want, and people need. And that's, that's the best, best feeling ever. So basically, when, when you go from like, nobody listening to you, to basically p- people like banging down your door to get what you're making, like, that's the feeling. So So it's really a radical difference.
0: Uh, we talked about kind of being in contact with uh, researchers and like using their, their knowledge. But uh, is there like other ways or how would you advise someone to kind of approach SDG related uh, topics when they're thinking about coming up with a, with a startup? So like how to approach those big environmental or societal challenges? yeah
1: like s sdgs um
0: i i don't know i think it's
1: like finding finding a problem that you're passionate about finding good teammates to work with you know i think that's also key like what is the what is the driver of the team what is the driver of you just finding a problem that you're so passionate about that you can work on it for the next you know years (laughs) and it doesn't need to be exactly perfect in the beginning it's not like you will have the perfect problem or like you won't have the perfect solution in the beginning but the problem might stay the same so if you find some big enough problem and then you kind of start finding solutions for that i think that's kind of like how you can approach things um and yeah finding teammates who are also passionate about the same thing is a great thing and before even starting a company just go to hackathons or you know do some competitions or challenges or or just do a startup weekend at home you know with takeout food and just like 72 hour hackathon i don't know um and just try it out and see see what sticks and and what you feel feel good about and what gets a good reception or
2: yeah there has been a discussion around the topic how the relation between impact and uh, profits go. So, do you think that solving all these big SDG-related uh, problems is possible with startups, even even if they are not that pro- profitable?
1: Yeah, I totally disagree with, with things not being profitable. I mean, climate change is the world's biggest problem. Mm. And globally, we're gonna put trillions of dollars into mitigation, so basically stopping it and adaptation. So getting us ready for the changing world. And just as a testament to this, in the past six months, I've seen more climate VCs or VCs calling themselves climate VCs pop up and angels uh, who have suddenly shifted that, oh, now they wanna do climate. I've seen more of those come up in the past six months than in the past six years. So there's definitely huge momentum and capital building towards that problem. So nothing like the last minute. And I think uh, there will be a lot of resources poured into that. And a lot of these problems just simply need an answer. And they are so colossal, like taking taking down even a million tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is a gigantic feat. It's just so difficult. Um, like avoiding emissions is easier, but but bringing it down is very, very difficult. And so for us to scale to, for example, tens of billions of tons, it'll take a thousand startups like ours and, and only a marginal part of them will actually succeed. But those who will, It'll be insane the the scale that you need to get to. So so I think there's definitely so much potential in solving these these challenges. And and I think it's like talks of the past that this SDG stuff is like somehow dusty and and no profitable. So yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I want to believe that it it holds like immense potential. Like really interested in in the topic myself. But if we're moving on to a bit different topic, we could talk a little bit about female founders. So what in your opinion are the reasons why there are still uh, less female founders, especially in startups?
1: Yeah, I really don't know. Um, it's It's been a topic forever. We were looking at you know female developers at some point. Now it's female founders. I, I really don't know but but I think alter yes can play a huge role in in helping that. So so really make making sure that there are a lot of, you know, female identifying people volunteering and and helping out put together events and and also taken into the programs uh taking leadership positions um all sorts of things that happen really at the grassroots. And I think yeah, in, I don't, I really don't know, I'm not a gender expert, but I think that if there's enough encouragement and enough people around you who are doing cool things, then that's a first stepping stone. And the second is access to capital. You really need to like drag the VCs to come and meet these these female, like f- female uh, volunteers and, and team members, even before they start any startup. The relationship often can be, can be really, really long. And And I think that it's it's worthwhile just meeting up with investors even before you have an idea to kind of build those relationships and understand how they think and listen to other entrepreneurs stories and stuff like that. And it'll help. It'll help a long way. But things are changing in Finland, like there are earlier stage funds, there's more angel investors, there's more people to ask for help from. So so really, there's like just, you know, just get started. There's there's nothing to lose. And my friend Chris Tour as well said many times that, look, if you start your own startup and you fail, I'm like far more likely to hire you <laughs> into a startup than if you had done some MBA or or worked at a corporate. So kind of like the previously safe routes, I don't know if that is held in such value anymore. I think starting and, and making something yourself and taking initiative is really highly appraisable. I wonder what else I would say about female entrepreneurs but entrepreneurs in general I'd say again like Alto ES's role and and other similar organizations is that people somehow think that from day 1 you should have the biggest idea and the biggest market and have everything ready but that's not how it goes you're Like the beginning is really scrappy. You sit on some cardboard boxes and and draw on some paper, you know, because you couldn't afford the meeting room with the whiteboard or whatever. Like it's, you you just really need to be scrappy. And that's how the best ideas start. And and it doesn't really matter. You're not supposed to, you know, bathe in glory from the beginning, but but actually just crunch away and find the things that work and that you want to work on. And, And then that way you can start building meaningful things. And I did like seven things besides carboculture, most of which would, which didn't work. And, and I had a previous startup as well. So so oftentimes it's like, you know, just building stuff for the joy of it and for trying to solve those problems and, and you know, rehearsing your own skills as well. And it doesn't always need to be a startup at first. It can be something else. It can be a movement. It can be an event. It can be, you know, just, just get in there and start doing stuff. And I think that's the way to to get into entrepreneurship.
2: We could uh, talk a bit more more about the PC or funding funding side of the thing. Yeah. So you just managed to raise 5.2 million euros uh, funding just a month ago, which is amazing and congratulations for that. Woo-hoo. But uh, do you feel, feel like uh, it is harder for women to get funding in Finland or in general?
1: yeah i mean i guess it is um staring at the statistics it it does seem like that um so we're a mixed team my co-founders are male and i'm female and i was mainly raising raising money and he came in then in kind of like very last discussions so yeah maybe it is more difficult but the only way to make it less difficult is just to have more women raising money and and getting more you know females out there making success stories and that's what's going to break the taboos so so i think that's point number one point number two is that there's so much capital outside of finland you don't have to focus only on the finnish investors today you can really easily find angel investors in your own domain of expertise like you can go to crunchbase and find out who are the angels investing into i don't know what would be you know uh urban farming kits for home or whatever something like this and and you can start googling for the companies find out who are the people interested in investing in the space who are writing about it and then reach out to them through intros or otherwise but really you can start finding people with expertise in your domain who are not in finland or helsinki and and i think that's something to think about but raising capital is always difficult
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think your story is going to be very inspiring to, to many. And is there some other encouraging words that you'd like to say to young people, especially young women out there listening?
1: There's never a good time to start a startup. So just, you know, I think Sami and always said that yesterday was the best time to start a startup. So just get out there and, and start doing stuff and you'll find the support, you'll find the, you know, networks you'll be able to do stuff and it's kind of like a school of its own if you're a startup founder or you know first team member or something else it's it's such a different experience than anything that you can learn from from school or sitting in a company that's that's not kind of like what you're building
2: yeah great that was before we wrap up do you have any book or podcast or other resource recommendations for our
1: listeners great question i think i should have thought about this beforehand i mean a couple of books that come to mind immediately uh one is bill gates climate the newest climate book i can't remember what it's called whatever but it's it's pretty pretty concise pretty clear um and quite effective documentary i just watched sea spiracy which was quite upsetting (laughs) uh and uh what else i've been kind of devouring also like culture books and how to how to lead people and all sorts of blogs first round capital blog uh, first round review is excellent it demystifies all the roles in startups like what does a chief of staff actually do there's I don't know there's so many resources out there if you're if you're thinking of starting a startup maybe the how to raise raise a seed by Y Combinator is pretty good as a, as a resource. It has a lot of kind of useful, useful blogs and, and stuff like that. And of course, deep blank stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, great recommendations and thank you so much for coming to our podcast. I think this uh, episode was really inspirational and a lot of great tips.
1: Yeah, super happy to be back. Hopefully soon we can have uh, events in person, but thanks for listening and thanks for asking me to be here. Uh, so awesome to see how Yes is plowing forward.